Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Jennifer Walters from She-Hulk. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, Anna Pappard. Welcome, Anna. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to talk about Jen today. And we are talking about She-Hulk from the, a comic book series from 2014 that was written by Charles Soule and drawn primarily by Javier Peludo. Uh, Polito uh, issues five and six that we'll also be talking about were drawn by Ron Wimberly and she Hulk is in the zeitgeist a little bit right now because she is part of a uh, Disney plus streaming show that at the time of recording has released one episode so far um, at the time of this release, a few more should be out. Um, but we are going not to like her origin story, but uh, just, you know, a, a story from eight years ago <laughs> that was being done with she Hulk. <laughs> Um, that makes me feel she... so old that this was eight years ago. I bought this off the rack and I, it feels like yesterday. Yeah, yeah, that happens pretty often with this podcast where I'm like going along. I'm like, oh, that was probably just three, four years ago. And like, mm-hmm. oh, no, <laughs> that, that, that is much older than I thought. The most shocking ones are when they're like the, the, the texts are old enough to, to drive or to vote now. I'm like, oh, time is passing quickly. <laughs> um. Do you remember when you first became aware of She-Hulk as a character? You know, that's a good question. Well, probably in the context of I started reading 21st century Marvel comics with the first Civil War event. So I'm sure I became aware of her through that because one of her solo series was, I think, running at that. No, she didn't have a solo series at that. No, no, no. Yeah, the Dance Lot solo series would have started just after that. I mm-hmm. believe because it started in 2005, right? I think she was featured pretty prominently in one of the the teams in Civil War. Yeah, yeah, she was she was on Tony's side, I think. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I probably became aware of her around that time. I don't think I would have known the character before then. And she's always been a character that I've wanted to like a lot. I remember reading the the Dan Slott solo series, at least the first volume of it, sort of around when it came out, and then went back and read a bunch of the older stuff as I was writing a dissertation about superheroes and specifically writing a lot about representations of bodies and gender and sexuality. So as you can imagine, be a, lots, a to, prominent choice to, <laughs> lots to write about with She-Hulk there. So at that time, I'd read like every She-Hulk appearance, basically, mm-hmm. for that chapter. And I've also read She-Hulk Diary the romance novel i wrote about that in a book chapter so i've done quite a bit of academic research and writing on she hulk read lots of stuff about she hulk and yeah i still come away with that feeling about her that she is this this character that i so badly want to like because the metaphors bound up in the character are fascinating and very very appealing i mean there's this scene that's been going around from the first episode of the show and it's not a spoiler because it doesn't not related to the plot but there's been the scene that's been going around that has jennifer walters talking about managing her anger and that her experience of being a hulk is so different because of the ways that women are already socialized to manage their anger and that really has been resonating with people because <laughs> that is a thing that doesn't get talked about as openly as it could. And I think it's a thing that resonates with a lot of women just on a basic level. 
But also, I thought that that was really insightful into the in terms of the things that I've always hoped She-Hulk could do, because definitely that idea of the character really resonated with me when the character was turned into this more comedic, more comfortable being Hulk character, which happened primarily with John Byrne um, in his work with the character in Fantastic Four, and then the Sensational She-Hulk graphic novel, and then the Sensational She-Hulk series, which... I have issues with that series, which we'll probably talk about in conversation with this one, because some of that shapes the, the reasons that I like this one a little bit better. But at the same time, the idea that she's a character who likes being the Hulk, who finds joy in being the Hulk, and having that set as a contrast to Bruce Banner's experience of being a Hulk, his primary experience of being a Hulk anyway, where he doesn't want to be a Hulk, and this is a burden to him. Whereas for her, in many ways, it's a blessing. And that contrast is fascinating and it really speaks to gender and the different ways that this experience would, I don't know, like be experienced for one person versus another person, you know, in ways that are very bound up in gender. And yeah, so that's like part of the fascination with this character, but also just, I mean, sticking with the anger thing. The idea of a woman's anger and a woman's emotions being presented as a heroic quality is really, really unusual and really, really powerful. And so despite the fact that I have a lot of issues with certain portrayals of She-Hulk, particularly in terms of complicated uses of cheesecake humor with this character, which I don't hate. I don't hate. There are <laughs> but, like... But it can get some, very male gazy yeah. depending on the artist. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it becomes a thing where who is this humor for sometimes with this character? And again, I think that that's something that Polito's arc goes away from, which is one of the reasons that I really appreciate it. But still, yeah, it's definitely like... Definitely not cheesecake yeah. style in this series. No, exactly. And that's like one of the huge reasons that it was such a breath, breath of fresh air for me. But still, she's the character that I think about when I think about a female superhero that would be aspirational to me. A female superhero that I would want to be and feel powerful. She is the idea that I often return to. You know, if I'm walking down a street at night alone, like, you know, heading back from a bar to a bar to an event or something, and people do the thing, men do the thing, they follow you, they say comments to you, that kind of thing. And I sometimes do this thing, like in my head, like imagining I was her and imagining the power that would flow through me if I knew I could become her. And the fact that I do that is really unusual for me because I often don't identify with female superheroes, but that speaks to me about what a powerful fantasy She-Hulk is, despite the fact that the ways that fantasy is mobilized are not always the ways that I would like. But again, I requested this series in particular because it does do some things with the character that assuage some of the problems that I have with some of the earlier portrayals. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. that's my little emotional <laughs> snapshot of some of my affection for her. So She-Hulk for me is a character that I became aware of because of trading cards in the 90s when I first okay. started <laughs> reading comic books. Uh, and, you know, pre- pre-wikipedia like if you're going to find out about the breadth of a superhero universe at least Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. me and my peer group a lot of it was through trading cards uh and uh because you couldn't afford to buy every issue when you're eight nine (laughs) ten you know uh years old and even though i had friends who read comics like we still had a pretty limited pool uh but we could buy the at the time like 25 cent or 50 cent packs of cards and 
a lot of times this is where you discover there's all these other characters uh, that you haven't seen in the issues um, that you've been reading. And I think She-Hulk, she's been around long enough that at least for comic book readers, it doesn't have this. But when like Marvel announced that they were doing a She-Hulk series, there is this immediate reaction of like, well, it is just a different version of our already established character. And uh, and they this is a way that comic book publishers have done to try and introduce uh, female characters that they feel will have a longer life because uh, it's really hard for them to introduce new characters. And lately there's been the wave of, or early, probably about 20 years ago, you started to see a lot of um, characters of color being introduced as like variations of established heroes. Uh, now you're seeing it with a lot of LGBTQ characters are being established as <laughs> variations of established heroes instead of um, trying to go stake a claim by themselves. And that's just market forces at play that um, established intellectual property is more likely to uh, be able to, to attract eyes. Um, but when you first heard the name She-Hulk, you I, I at least like I remember seeing the card and like, what, is it just a girl Hulk? <laughs> like that's what it mm-hmm. is. And once you find the character, you you know there's so much more going on. Like once once you find some of the stories, well, I guess depending on the story, <laughs> there can be more going on uh, w- with the character. Um, but I remember that was just my initial reaction, and then um, I think I first read her in some Fantastic Four issues. Uh, that is probably where I first encountered her because when I started reading, I don't know that there were very many She-Hulk miniseries or series. I think it was a, a gap time for her to have a, a, a you know, her own series. Um, and then um, just because of some of the other projects I was working on, I do remember like all the buzz around the Dan Slot series and thinking, oh, I need to read that one. And it's still, I'm like, oh, I need to go and read the Dan Slot <laughs> She-Hulk <No>. series. <laughs> um and, and it's one of those characters that is kind of um, often like on the periphery and it's like, oh, I need to go go read more um, of her adventures. But it's just there's so much material out there. So, you know, there's there's so much media. Um, and this is one of the first times I've like gone and read like back to back to back to back, you know, issues of She-Hulk comics. And I really enjoyed it. And I like what they're doing. I think I like through osmosis of being a Marvel fan, like I picked up a lot of Jen Walt, uh, Walters and what differentiates her from Bruce Banner and, and um, a lot of what they do um, with the series. Um, and this series, I thought, was a really good um, encapsulation, I think, of, of like a lot of those ideas of what I had about who She-Hulk probably was and to see her like in the courtroom and also to see her um, so many of the conflicts in this series are resolved by her talking and not by mm-hmm, her smashing, mm-hmm. which I, I'm sure is a very deliberate choice by Charles Soule, uh, the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like so many times, like, okay, I've got to smash for a minute, but as soon as I can, we're talking this out and then they talk it out and everything gets resolved. And like the smashing is done, uh, you know, with these, um, which is I've, I've read more Hulk comics. Those tend to be a little more smash centric for resolution um, and, and violence as the answer, uh, to, to a lot of Hulk's problems. So I enjoyed, um, this series and it made me want to go again, go pick up that dance lot series. And I think that there's a new series coming out right now, correct? With, uh, with yes, She-Hulk. with, uh, Rainbow Rowell is writing it. Right. And I've enjoyed, uh, her work that I've read. Um, I think she's, um, a lot of times when a novelist goes to comics, there's a transition period. <laughs> and I've read some of her runaways. I think there's a little bit of the, some of the issues mm-hmm, that sometimes happen mm-hmm. with novelists to, to comics, but I feel like she was getting her feet pretty quick with that. So I'd be interested to see what she's doing with the She-Hulk. There's been some pacing issues, but I do have to plug that the next issue coming out at the time of this recording is a team up with her and Nightcrawler. So I've been waiting in eager anticipation of that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, our listeners, if they've only heard you on this podcast, you've been on an episode talking about Nightcrawler. Uh, but if they've seen your work uh, on uh, so your your social media academic work or your publications or or your appearances on other podcasts, I think your love of, of Nightcrawler is well known. <laughs> <laughs> They're they're dressed up in fancy clothes, having uh, high tea on the cover of the issue. So looking forward to seeing what's going to happen there. All right. Well, uh, before we jump into this particular series with She-Hulk, um, I'm going to cover a little bit of trivia. So She-Hulk was co-created by Stanley and John. And this is one of those names in comics that I've read a thousand times and I've heard pronounced probably six different ways. And I actually don't know what is correct. Busima is what I'm going to say, but I've also heard <laughs> Bushema. <laughs> I think I say it differently every time I say it. Just to try and cover all the bases, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes I hear like the the long e is it like Busima. I'm like, okay, all right, maybe could be. <laughs> um, and the character first appeared in 1980. Um, and this I have seen often credited as the last creation Stanley was involved with for Marvel Comics. But then it gets some caveats because he did come back later on and do some stuff where like he met his own creation. So it's like, is that version of Stanley count as a new, <laughs> like where it's like Stanley meets the thing. Uh, and he wrote like an adventure about him, like going down the street and running into the, the thing. Uh, and so does that comic book version of Stanley count as a new creation for Marvel? And so it gets a little caveated, but it is as far as like his era of, um, you know, when he when he was actively involved with the the comic book scene, because this is as he's transitioning to Hollywood and really trying to make Marvel television properties happen more and more. And he's becoming much more disconnected from uh, the day to day comic book uh, publication cycle. This is one of the, the last things that he's involved with is creating She-Hulk. Um, and the origin is that Jennifer Walters is a lawyer who needs an emergency blood transfusion. And the only match is her cousin, Bruce Banner, who happens to be nearby. And so she gets infused with, uh, Hulk blood and, uh, then has, depending on what we're talking about, either similar, like I get angry and I become a raging she Hulk monster, or I am, uh, able to control and match my Jennifer Walters persona and my, and my she Hulk persona. Uh, as one um and very often you'll see like she hulk as a lawyer like wearing lawyer uh you know attire in the courtroom uh, but being giant and green um the character has been a member of the avengers the fantastic four the defenders and a whole bunch of other smaller teams uh that had shorter runs <laughs> um, but she's also carried her own series on and off for the last 40 years i think in total it's it's well over 100 issues that have been published of just like a she hulk oh title. yes yes um, i can but- before the relaunch of Carol Danvers series, like the Captain Marvel series, She-Hulk, actually, this is weird because I think Spider-Girl actually had the most issues of, of like any female superhero led book. That was Marvel, like the, but... uh, the future version of like Cindy yeah. Parker's daughter as, as yeah. Spider-Girl. Because that, that series was surprisingly issues. long running. But taken together, other than that, She-Hulk had the longest run solo series of any marvel superhero and her prominence in the universe like again prior to kind of carol danvers being rejuvenated as kind of marvel's premier feminist superhero she hulk actually was very much marvel's premier feminist superhero and like marvel's premier premier like female superhero in general because Mm -hmm. when they did the 2010 women of marvel event that was actually 
thematized around the birthday of She-Hulk. Like she was their most mm. prominent female character. So like, I mean, when you think about her as like, oh, she's just an offshoot of the Hulk. It's like, actually, she was Marvel's yeah. most prominent female character, mm-hmm. like 100%, like based on the number of solo issues and yeah. like based on things like her being thematized there. Yeah, uh, particularly carrying her own solo title. Um, like mm-hmm. I like I love Storm. She's one of my favorite uh you know women in marvel comics but she's very rarely carried a solo title um, <laughs> well yeah that's, that's the thing most most of marvel's best female characters are in the x-men franchise but they're in a team book right so like mm-hmm. in terms of solo characters marvel's always been a little bit thin yeah and i will say uh she hulk did not need all of the rehabilitation carol danvers captain marvel needed because the some writers mm-hmm. have done some awful things with carol danvers captain marvel uh throughout yeah. the years <laughs> um and and she's like they have done that rehabilitation and, and like centered her uh, within the Marvel universe much more in the last 10 years. Um, but my goodness, was there a mess with that character for a while? <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see what else. Oh, one aspect of She-Hulk that is often used is the character breaking the fourth wall. Um, when we talk about combo characters that break the fourth wall, I think now everyone goes to Deadpool because of his movies popularized that aspect of that character. Um, and that's something the character was doing in the comic books, but She-Hulk um, was doing it previously. This was primarily done in, in the run written and drawn by John Byrne uh, in the late eighties and early nineties. Um, and then it's kind of been used on and off by subsequent writers, depending on their mood. <laughs> it's not like a core thing of the character, yeah, um, yeah. but it, it's something that you do see um, show up within the series. Uh, and um, I mentioned that there's the new Disney plus series called she Hulk attorney at law. Um, and you can see some very interesting takes on that. If you go look online. <laughs> oh yeah. The discourse of that has been predictably exhausting in ways yeah. that are both fascinating to me as a scholar and disappointing to me as a fan. But also I bet we could have written so many of the tweets, uh, and, mm-hmm. and the review bombs before they were ever done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and, uh, but it's worth noting she Hulk first appeared on television in 1982 in a Hulk cartoon. And she's appeared in several animated series, uh, since then, but this is the first live action portrayal of, uh, she Hulk. Um, Anna, you dropped in a little bit of trivia. Do you want to read those ones off? Yeah, I can add a little bit of trivia about this particular series. Just like a few things I'll throw in there. So Soul is off the dome. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, totally. I didn't make notes. This is just right off the dome. So Soul is a lawyer in addition to being a writer. And the idea, kind of the pitch of his his writing the series was to bring some legal realism to the series. And I think we see that a lot. You know, we got her hanging out in the lawyer bar. And we have a lot of stories in this series focusing on being in trials which is (laughs) different than we'd had in some previous she-hulk comics there is a lot of lawyering in previous she-hulk comics but uh legal realism hadn't really been a feature of the series and this kind of tries to bring a little bit of that with that um i like i'm not a lawyer but reading the legalese that he drops in some of the scenes, it just had an air of authenticity that um, when you can drop the correct jargon, even if it's like a writer having to go research the jargon for a field, like it just makes scenes feel better when the right jargon mm-hmm. is being used. Even if mm-hmm. I like can't go specifically say why it's the right jargon. And there are some runs of like just overcrowded word balloons of a lawyer, just like rambling at Jennifer Walters. <laughs> that just, I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh, this all reads right. Like, I, and I don't know why I can sense as a reader, the authenticity of it, but it definitely comes through. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we'll, we'll talk about it. She has encounters with Tony Stark's lawyer who just goes by the name of Legal and there's a lot of commentary on the practice of lawyering in that storyline. Particularly for corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a couple of things. We already kind of mentioned this, but this series, I wouldn't say that the series is lighter on the humor. It definitely includes that humor. But again, as we mentioned briefly, lighter on the cheesecake humor, like mm-hmm. Polito's style is very not in that style it's very much more of a kinetic style and i can tell you at the time that some fans were very upset about this um even demanding polito be fired it was sort of very much shades of the you know new shira design isn't sexy enough for us quote unquote scandal uh that was that was very much part of the discourse of this series at the time although in my circles, this is a very beloved series, and I think it's become kind of a, a cult favorite series in the years since then. Um, so it was unexpectedly canceled, uh, as often happens with... I don't want to say this is starring a B-list character, because She-Hulk should be an A-list character, but still unexpectedly canceled after 12 issues. This happens so often with the series that are not the five most popular characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll have like to wrap it up for in Marvel, Yeah, For Marvel, if it's not like a core X-Men series or one of the mm-hmm. core Avengers series, meaning like Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man, uh, and, it, and Spider-Man. Like th- those are like their main threads. And if it's not directly one of those a lot of these series are going to come for anywhere from six to 24 issues and then disappear. And then three or four years later, they're going to come back. <laughs> you know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of seems to be the pattern that we see. That's the cycle that we see. So Sol, uh, Sol rather did talk about it at the time and claimed that he wrapped up what he wanted to wrap up. But if you do continue to issue number 12, you will see it doesn't really end satisfactorily, but still it does its best. Um, and I did also want to mention, because it's, just a plug because it's a good essay that Ron Wimberly talks about, you know, briefly, he makes reference to some of his work on this series in an excellent visual essay that he did for the nib uh, called lighten up about race and coloring in comics. And you should just go and read that because it's an excellent essay. Okay. And I will say Charles soul. Now he is still working a lot for Marvel, but he's working primarily in their star wars corner so disney owning both marvel and star wars has led to um a very large section of you know marvel talent now working on star wars uh, comics and so he's had some like he had a long run on daredevil right again the lawyer (laughs) um side side of him coming out and um some other runs but now if you go look for his comic book work mostly it's going to be featuring star wars and also star wars novels i think he's been doing quite a few of those Mm mm-hmm All right, well, before we move on to the summary of these uh, six issues, we're going to talk about the first six issues. Uh, We want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and supporter show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on any level get access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes, and we should talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the discussion of these six issues. Issue number one, Jennifer Walters is fired from her law firm because the partners expected her to bring big name clients for the superhero community. But instead, Jennifer Walters was just extremely good at her job, <laughs> which I love that. Poor Jen. <laughs> I, I build so many hours. I, you know, I, I was doing everything you want. Well, we really just want you to bring in Tony Stark's and Reed Richards into into uh, uh, says clients. 
after uh, that, she goes to a bar and a woman approaches Jen with a case no other lawyer will take. The woman claims her husband invented repulsor technology and tried to sell it to Stark Industries, but was turned away. Then a short time later, Iron Man began his career using repulsor rays and the tech has been key to Stark Industries' rise in the tech sector. Jen tries to go see Tony Stark because they're their teammates and dated at one point um but is instead diverted to the stark legal team which again is a man named legal um after getting stonewalled jen takes the case to court where the legal team throws every delaying tactic imaginable at the case and this is where there's so much delightful legal jargon uh, <laughs> that, that appears on the page um jen gets enraged at this and she finally just storms to stark towers and defeats the robot sentries to get into tony's office where she meets him face to face and explains what's going on he had no idea any of this was happening uh and he writes a generous check to the woman who gives jen a generous percentage and then jen uses that money to open up her own law office issue number two and like a refrain in that first issue is um so much of lawyering is just conversations or you know something along those lines that it's not really always the like back and forth and legal wrangling and loopholes it's like can i get in the room and talk to someone face to face and sometimes you have to punch a lot of robots in order to get in the room <laughs> yes uh issue number two we see that jen's new offices are at a building owned by a former mutant who rents out office space to people with powers jen hires a new paralegal who has a pet monkey uh then she goes for a night out with patsy walker who is also known as hellcat uh hellcat gets drunk and wants to go take on an aim base now if you're not a reader of marvel comics aim is like the perfect random foil <laughs> for a, a hero <laughs> they are um advanced idea mechanics scientists who want to use science for evil and wear these kind of yellow beekeeper costumes uh these costumes were a little bit referenced in the wandavision tv series um but it's just a great aesthetic for artists to draw <laughs> just a whole bunch of random people in these yellow kind of beekeeper looking uh outfits um and they can show up anywhere at any time and you don't really have to give them a whole lot of motivations uh so hellcat wants to go take on aim uh, and when she gets there, uh, some AIM agents attack with giant robots. She hopes defeats one and then uh, intimidates the other AIM agent. And Jen asks Patsy if she wants to go work as an investigator for her law firm. The next day, the son of Dr. Doom, Kristoff, is in Jennifer's office asking her to help him obtain asylum in the United States. Um, now, Dr. Doom is kind of like a the big big bad of the Marvel Universe uh, as far as like Earthbound threats <laughs> go. Um <laughs> And so, like, if you're more familiar with, like, the DC, this would be, like, Lex Luthor's son coming saying, I want to be um, disenfranchised from my father, right? Um, so Jennifer is going to take on Kristoff's case, but has been in the, but he has been in the U.S. for one calendar year. And in order to claim asylum, you only have one calendar year from touching U.S. soil to do so. So they have to get him into court that day. Following many hijinks with Doombots, which are robots that, dr doom has created uh she hulk does get Kristoff to court and the judge grants him asylum uh because of her legal arguments that she gives but then dr doom arrives bursting through the ceiling of the courtroom and takes his son back to latveria uh the country that dr doom rules uh issue number four uh jen goes to chat with matt murdoch about this and then she flies to Latveria. She fights Doombots until a giant Doombot grabs her and asks if she is here because she loves Kristoff. And she asks if Doom loves his son, which pauses the battle. Uh, Kristoff then arrives, and Doom and Kristoff have a heart-to-heart. -heart. <laughs> then Kristoff takes Jen back to the United States, but says he's going to stay in Latveria with his dad. Back at her office, Jen looks over a file in which she is listed as a defendant, along with several other Marvel heroes and a villain or two. She has no idea what this file is about or what this lawsuit is. She has no memory of it at all. Issue number five. Uh, Jen goes to talk to the Shocker, who is a like C-list Marvel villain that was listed in this lawsuit. 
to see if he knows why he would be in a lawsuit with her. Uh, Jen's paralegal, Angie, goes to North Dakota to search for information uh, because that's where the lawsuit was filed, uh, while Patsy Walker talks with Tigra, who was also named in the lawsuit. After a very brief skirmish, Jen and Shocker talk things over, uh, but he only has a vague idea what this might be about. Using his shock powers, he says, is like uh, constant (laughs) micro-concussions, and it's really messed with his memory. Um, And then Patsy uh, Walker, uh, when she talks about the case with Tigra, uh, tiger goes into a trance and attacks her and the clerk at the courthouse where angie goes pulls out a gun uh when angie starts asking questions about the case issue number six we see angie's body in the snow but her pet monkey goes and breathes on her and she shoots back to life despite there being a bullet in her head uh some demons attack jen but she fights them off uh and then word gets out in the superhero community that jen has a new law firm and her old friends come to switch over to her office because it's kind of like what the law office wanted in issue number one is actually happening for Jen now that she has her own law office. And so after six issues of very much struggling to find clients and uh, get uh, a footing in her legal career, now she opens the door and there's dozens of people waiting to sign her on as their lawyer. And that's the end of issue number six. And my understanding from uh, a little chat we had right before recording is that the this legal case that they were looking at doesn't really ever get fully resolved because the series got canceled before Charles soul could fully wrap up all the storylines that he introduced. Yeah, it, uh, (laughs) we've never found out the full story behind Angie and the monkey, though there's a telling question in issue number 12, where Jen asks Angie, what are you? And that gives you a little bit of an idea that there's way more going on with Angie than meets the eye in her first appearance. Right. Um, my first reaction that I just want to say so much of comic book storytelling is in the art. And I found that I was really vibing with, uh, with the, the, the first art, uh, that we had the, uh, the Polito art, um, which is kind of, if I'm trying to make a comparison, it's Mike Allred. Uh, you know, it's lots of clean lines and a, a style that, like we said, is not cheesecakey and it's very distinct from, um, a lot of comic book art that you see, um, out there. Uh, and I thought it was a really great take. And then we get to issue number five and six. And, um, I, I, it wasn't working for me, not in terms of composition, which a lot of times when the comic book art isn't working for me, it's like panel to panel, something's not working. And I love the layout layouts that we were getting, um, from, uh, Wimberly, but something about the, the face and maybe it's the coloring of the face, like, like just the actual like facial figure uh, figures. It just wasn't working for me as well as what what we had before. And I, I found myself being a little bit removed from the story uh, because of the change in the artist, um, which is the nature of comic book ongoing storytelling is very often um, artists get replaced uh, partway through just because of timing issues. The, uh, the publisher needs to get the next issue out. So they, they bring in a fill in artist and the, art- the artistic style doesn't always match. And sometimes you're going to find something that really works with the replacement. But for me, I I just had a little bit of a disconnect from the story because of the artistic change. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And I remember, I do remember there being discourse about that at the time as well. And the thing is, Wimberly's a great artist and Mm -hmm. he can draw in a lot of different styles. And it's not really about that. But fill-in artists should, in theory, be at least the same tone that the series Mm -hmm. had been established. So I do agree that it is a very strong shift in tone. That's a challenging choice, five issues into a series, to have that (laughs) dramatic shift in tone. And we have a lot of important storytelling happening in those two issues as well. So taken on their own, I like those issues, but it is jarring within the context of the larger series uh, penciled by Polito. I definitely agree there. 
and, but I do want to say, like, I, there are some choices that Wimberly makes that I actually really love, like some of the overhead shots and like where he puts, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term, the, the camera uh, as, as you're looking in. Like, it's really is dynamic. So it's, I'm not trying to like trash it. It just the story that I had been reading just felt so different in issue five yeah, and six yeah. uh, because of the, the different art style. Yeah, and there's sort of a, a calmness and kind of a cartooniness to Polito's artwork that makes mm-hmm. some of the humor work really well. Like just the f- combination of sort of flatness and kineticism in his artwork, I think is a really good fit for the dry humor of this series because it's a very like slapstick series in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like there is a lot of physical comedy, but it's very dry as well. And timing is a really big part of it. And the switch to Wimberly just isn't the same tone. Yeah, I think timing is a really good thing, which is an odd thing to say about static images on a page uh but you do get um beca- because he like inserts panels of like close-ups of Jen's eyes mm-hmm. uh you know open and then close and then open again <laughs> things like that um like you get a sense of the rhythm of the of like the beat that is happening in between lines of dialogue uh that i think is a really good match for that tone and uh and the type of humor that charles soul is bringing to this particular series um and so that that match felt just right uh when we were there um and i think it is a strength of the series uh to to have uh polito's art and um the the way that he's gonna draw jen um that is um so distinct i guess in terms of the portrayals of she hulk from what i've seen before uh where i mean there's so much about she hulk it's not the iconography of like ns it's just she's a giant green woman <laughs> that is tells you this is she hulk so quickly uh you know it's, it's not like you know this the superman costume or the batman costume or the spider-man costume is like no that's just she hulk so i think there is um some pliability in how artists are going to portray that within the world that they're creating and i think Polito did a wonderful job well yeah i mean the com the conversation about sort of sexualization of She-Hulk is really, really complicated. And I try to be really careful when I'm having those kind of conversations, not to neglect anybody's gaze, because some people do find the very male gazy version of She-Hulk very empowering for their own reasons. And I mean, uh, viewers of all different genders can find that very empowering for their own reasons. But I, for me personally, sort of encountering Polito's version of Jen Walters slash She-Hulk, it was very important to me in the sense that the hypersexualized versions of She-Hulk and particularly uh, some of the stuff from the Dan Slott era, less so the interior art from the Dan Slott era, much of which I enjoyed, but that series had cheesecake pinup covers by Greg Horn and then covers by Mike Diodato, you know, characters who <laughs> do very um, kind of hypersexualized, hypersexualized yeah, versions of the female form. Yeah. <laughs> Just like all the worst excesses that and you can I, imagine. Yeah. I still remember when that was series coming out. Like I remember a discourse of like, these covers are not selling the story that's inside these pages. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that, true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. I liked that comic better than I liked the covers. But mm -hmm. so still, so it's just one of the things with that kind of artwork. I mean, it gets back to what we mean when we talk about objectification, you know, because who are we selling this fantasy of this empowered woman to? And for me, when I look at that certain hypersexualized images of She-Hulk, it's not a body that I imagine myself inhabiting it's not somebody that i want to be it's somebody that i feel distanced from because it feels like she's performing for a gaze that's not mine 
with Polito's art style, she's a character that I can invest myself in a little bit more. And it was very exciting to see a version of Jennifer Walters like that, that I could feel that about. Because, you know, I talked off the top about she's a character that I always want to really like. And in terms of the story of the character, in terms of the metaphors that play with the character, I do find her very identifiable. But when she's drawn in some of those hypersexualized styles, it's so clear that the fantasy is not being sold to me. And it can become an issue, especially when you combine the humor of the character. You get into situations where is the joke you know, at her expense, or is the Mm -hmm. joke something that's including her, right? And you run into a lot of issues with that in various She-Hulk series, you know, think about one of the iconic, (laughs) iconically problematic scenes from the Burn Sensational She-Hulk series is this issue where she jumps rope in the nude. And that's what's sold on the cover. And the cover is actually quite disturbing from a certain perspective because she's trying to cover herself up for a newspaper and the editors like the editors like no you have to get naked for for the fans and she doesn't want to and she seems scared so it's quite disturbing like when you put it in a context of like oh wow she's you know being sexually harassed and exploited (laughs) by her editor and this is supposed to be funny and then so how they played in the issue is that she jumps rope in the nude for like five pages or something, but she's not actually nude. It turns out she's wearing a teensy tiny bikini, but, you know, it's framed and posed as though she's jumping rope in the nude for five pages. And like, it's funny, you know, like I get the joke, but it's another case, as I just said, you know, like, who is the joke for? Is mm-hmm. She-Hulk included in that joke or is the joke at She-Hulk's expense? And I think it's complicated. Yeah, and... I think you can make different arguments about that issue, mm-hmm. but that cover, I would say, suggests her expense. And it really comes across with something like that as just like sophomore titillation, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, more than like a, a commentary about femininity or empowerment uh, or agentive uh, sexuality. And I'll stand up for it a little bit in the sense that, not necessarily that particular issue, but I'll stand up for the Sensational She-Hook series a little bit in terms of there is a narrative of sexual empowerment that's bound up in the fourth wall breaking, that's like bound up in this character having a very unashamed sexual agency, which is really important about the character and something that carries through into the slot series and into this series, although it's also part of this series. And those things are important, but... Yeah, go read Lillian Robinson's book about uh, feminisms and superheroes if you want to read a really good reading of the Sensational She-Hulk series in the conversation in conversation with um, narratives of post-feminism and the ways that objectification was sold as empowerment in the '90s. All of those things are very much uh, a textbook in in the Sensational She-Hulk series from the '90s. Uh, yeah, there, there's quite a bit of um, academic commentary that I think does exist out there on She-Hulk. Your work, um, I, there was a, um, y- it's a character that I think is a fascinating nexus point for a lot of ideas that are worth engaging with when we talk about pop culture and feminism and sexualization and objectification and all these issues. Well, yeah, and one of the things too that's 
particularly fascinates me when I've written about the character is the way that various solo series of hers kind of map really well onto different eras of feminism. Like her first Mm. solo series from the early 1980s is very much in conversation with Marvel was doing this thing where they developed a bunch of new female superheroes who are very much in conversation with second wave feminism, or at least a pop culture version of second wave feminism that often wasn't really second wave feminism. But anyway, filtered through a lot of male editors. uh, Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, definitely deliver Deliberately saying things like women's lib and stuff like that was definitely present in those comics. And then in the 90s, as I said, it's very much in conversation with post-feminism. You know, the idea of objectification of empowerment is very central to that series. And then you get into the comics from the 21st century and feminism gets confusing in the 21st century. No one knows what era of feminism we're in now, but it's definitely... We don't have enough distance to really label anything yet. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true too. But because she so obviously, you know, plays plays with stereotypes of gender and bodies, she is a character that, you know... What version of female strength are we going to see when we see She-Hulk? And she becomes a very interesting kind of nexus point to have those kind of conversations. Yeah, and this version by Charles Soule, I think one thing that gets centered really well is um, the idea of her physical strength, right? Whenever she gets into mm-hmm. a fight, <laughs> she she is going to be very care- capable. But also, uh, like, her, her how formidable she is in, in, the, in the court. Um, you know, that, that her... Her legal skills aren't just an afterthought. Um, that is something to distinguish this character from Bruce Banner, uh, which is how my sense of sometimes that appeared <laughs> um, in, in some other versions of this. And I, I think Charles Soule being a lawyer is going to help to center that um, that aspect of the character. And that seems to be, I, I haven't watched it yet, but I mean, the, the, the Disney Plus series is called She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Um, you know, I, I think the playing into this the strengths or the narrative possibilities of highlighting the lawyerly side of jennifer walters um seems to be something that's happening more with the character yeah absolutely and i love that point that you made earlier about she solves a lot of problems by talking because there you know there's plenty of fight scenes in this comic but it showcases the ways she has different types of power and even as She-Hulk, she has different types of power. You know, we see her as She-Hulk, you know, very, not prim and proper, but very sort of stylish in her lawyer clothes. And then occasionally she hulks out and tears those clothes <laughs> to shreds. Her, so like even then there are, budget, yeah. budget must be astronomical. That's why she yes. she really needs to get some clients because she, she tears out of her business casual attire so quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, so even things like that, you know, and we see different visions of her body. We do see her like body being very hulked out. We see her being in more of her at rest green form. And we see her a little bit as plain old Jennifer Walters in the series, but not too much. She's She-Hulk for most of the series, which is consistent with the character. Um, One of my very favorite moments in the series is uh, um, highlighting the that talking through the conflict aspect mm-hmm. and it's when this giant doombot has grabbed her and has her closed in this fist and like pulls her up to the doombot's face and says something that I, I i'm not gonna get the quote exactly right but it says basically like are you in love with my son or, or do you love my son and then she says do you and there's just this pause from this giant doombot <laughs> which mm-hmm. uh, very often with the doombots our sense is that Do- dr doom is directly controlling them like if you're having a conversation with the doombot you're actually having a conversation with dr doom um 
is something that happens. And just that long pause that, uh, you know, the pacing gives us and again, brilliant pacing can, can happen in comic books. Uh, and for doom, who is one of the biggest narcissists in the Marvel universe, which is a universe full of narcissists to be stopped in his tracks <laughs> by, by an argument, uh, says so much I, about who, uh, she Hulk is, I think, um, yeah, you know, that, yeah. uh, the this debate uh and th- this little you know repartee back you know this law back of of a question turning it back on dr doom literally stops this giant robot in its tracks uh and you see similar beats when she's fighting shocker she's able to stop that conflict with the aim like yes she destroys one aim robot but then she basically just intimidates the next one uh you know and, and talks the other one out <laughs> um you know th- th- that so much of this it does end up being about um she's capable of using violence to end the conflict. But she's also very good at talking through the conflict and, and reaching resolution that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right that that's a very deliberate thing that this series is doing. And it gets back to that question of, you know, she's a character that thematizes strength. So what does strength look like in any particular version of She-Hulk becomes such a fascinating conversation. And, you know, what does female power look like in this comic? It looks like a diversity of modes of power, including mentorship of other women and female characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's, um, I mean, we get Angie, her paralegal who we don't, learn much about but you know that's one other female presence that we get in her law office but then we're going to get um hellcat and tigra are going to be prominent characters um hellcat seems to be set up to be like a regular recurring one but tigra is um in the, in the latter uh, couple issues that, that we talked about um used used quite a bit so there's and, and there's different kinds of femininity with each one of these characters um mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. and uh I, I think charles soul is is being very careful, right? And, and deliberate uh, in how he's going to write these. And so we have moments that I think in, um, it, it would be possible to come off. I, I don't know. So like uh, there's a girl's night out with Jen and Hellcat going out and getting drunk, but it never at all ends up feeling salacious or, or like, Oh, you know, we're, we're, we're just leering at these drunk college girls, you know, which is absolutely something that, male writers writing women going out (laughs) and getting drunk have done. Uh, And, uh, but even within that, like Jen, it like has the conversation of like, she can handle the drink differently than, than Hellcat and Hellcat is losing some of her inhibitions, which is why she wants to like go get in a fight basically uh, with aim. And Jen is going to kind of walk her through this process. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, be there for her, but also kind of, say like give her a helping hand and in the end offer her a job right and say like you've got a skill set that i I need um you know at my law firm and so yeah there's that mentorship that you're that you're identifying but i just think it's interesting that there are so many female um roles that we're we're seeing here yeah and just the drinking night i really love because it's character based i mean i think that's Mm -hmm. why it doesn't feel salacious because there are character motivations that aren't Mm -hmm. just about I don't know. They're not just about getting laid. They're not just about something petty like that. These are deep character motivations that we're seeing here. You know, we're seeing Hellcat looking for meaning in her life and being reckless and irresponsible, which is very much part of the history of that character. She I was has say, a complicated <laughs> There's a history. meta commentary yeah. because mm-hmm. Patsy Walker is like predates Marvel superheroes um, mm-hmm. as a character. It is really one of the oldest characters within the Marvel universe 
is Patsy Walker. And is it in the 70s that she gets the superhero identity? It is oh. indeed. I wanted okay. to talk about that because it's significant to both her and Tigra showing up in this series because they have an intertwined history, which is fascinating to me. So I love that it's these two characters that show up in particular because they are central to the feminist history of Marvel Comics. So Greer Nelson, who was originally the cat, is introduced in 1972 and... and eponymous series called the cat or claws of the cat actually uh written by linda linda feet first issue penciled by mary severin other female artists worked on other issues it was part of this there were three titles i think that marvel did at that time uh written by women starring female characters including shanna the she-devil and the debut of night nurse as well all in 1972 so it was marvel's first solo female superhero in general but also written and drawn by women so a huge milestone. So Greer Nelson, later after the cancellation of the cat after four issues, gets transformed into Tigra. But the costume of the original cat gets adopted by Hellcat, who finds it in a 70s Avengers comic and becomes Hellcat and then becomes a longtime member of the Defenders and kicks around the Marvel Universe. And so, yeah, like both of these characters are really centrally connected to that underrepresented feminist legacy of Marvel Comics, and they have a conversation about it in issues, whether it's issue five or six, but it's in the Wimberley issues, where, you know, Tiger even says, you know, you look good in the costume, you know, you do the costume, <laughs> you look better in the costume than I ever did, or something like that, which I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. And then there's the interesting speech where Patsy asks Tigra about, you know, are you ever uncomfortable fighting crime in a bikini? And Huh. it's a hard thing because the fact that Marvel's first feminist superhero became a sexy cat lady who fights crime in a string bikini. <sighs> I have which, which in this issue is not drawn as a string bikini. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah, often it yeah. is just a string bikini that's barely there. Uh, and because this I've... is a, a different portrayal of that. Yes, yes. That's an important part of it. I want to mention that because, yeah, Tiger is a fun character and... But at the same time, the fact that that's who Greer Nelson got transformed into, given her origin, is a bit something. But anyway, bringing these characters together and kind of addressing that legacy and showing like a friendship and a form of mentorship between these two characters as well is important. And then you get the speech from Tiger about, you know, the empowerment of her costume. And, you know, if people stare at her and have a problem with her, that's her problem. So on the one hand, that's kind of doing the 90s post-feminism thing of like selling objectification of as empowerment. But that's a case where Wimberley's art really works for me because his style mm -hmm. is not traditionally objectifying like the image of her in the bikini, which, you know, as you said, it's a very like, it's a fashion sporty bikini, like as he draws it, which is not what she usually wears. Usually he wears mm -hmm. more of like the string bikini. So this is a very different design which works a lot better for me it like is defensible as kind of like a sexy yoga outfit or like a bikini that you can actually move in that you might use for sports so that I liked but also again Wimberley's style is very not conventionally objectifying you know mm -hmm. it's like not a clean line cheesecakey style there's even like sort of a gender deviance to to Tiger's body the way he draws her she's quite animalistic she's hairier than she sometimes appears when other artists draw her usually she just kind of looks like she has the tiger stripes and he's got sort of tufts and bulges of hair coming out of her and everything so like 
the visualization of that scene with that speech worked for me. And I think Mm -hmm. that is a case where if that had been drawn at a cheesecake style, Tiger making the speech that like the bikini is empowering, just don't even talk about it. Like that wouldn't have worked for me, but with this particular art, it did work for me a little better. Mm -hmm. And I went and just double checked uh, when Patsy Walker first appeared, it goes back to uh, 1944. And then she's in a bunch Mm -hmm. of like teen comic book series through the forties and fifties and then gets pulled into like background character of the Marvel universe <laughs> in the sixties. And then finally becomes Hellcat in 72. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's just, I mean, there's a whole thing where like Patsy is really at the center of the Marvel universe. I mean, Stanley has said Marvel comics wouldn't exist without Patsy Walker because it was Patsy's comics that were keeping the company afloat before they went back to superheroes in the sixties. Um, in Douglas Wolk's book, um, all of the Marvels, he has a chapter that talks about um, romance comics and kind of the how they ebb and flow within Marvel Marvel's publication mm-hmm, history. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of like a, when you realize like the book industry wouldn't exist without romance novels. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. that's kept the entire industries afloat uh, in, in ways that goes unrecognized because of who is writing them for whom very often. And who writes the histories of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, I, I see we're probably getting near the end. Is there anything that you want to make sure we touch on with uh, either She-Hulk in general as a character or this particular run about She-Hulk? Oh, that's such a big question. I mean, I could talk all day about kind of the glories of Polito's art and some favorite moments of the art. Like that first issue in particular, just God, that's a great first issue. So much happens in that issue. So much of it happens so quickly and kinetically with the way Polito draws and sort of all the things that we've talked about you know if you want to get a taste of this series and see whether it's for you that first issue is gonna is gonna either sell you on the series or not because all of it mm. is there and one of my favorite favorite scenes from the entire series is she breaks a conference table like just with her finger <laughs> and it snaps in two and it's such a wonderful distillation of her character because you have this huge green amazon woman dressed in like a pencil skirt and heels who just with the power of her finger is going to snap this conference table in two as the horrified businessmen who just fired her for being too good at her job look on in horror Mm mm-hmm well, not good at the job they wanted her to be. Yes, <laughs> yes. in the way they wanted. Yeah, that's the uh, yeah. Oh, it was it was such a frustrating scene. Like like you just talking back to that that idea of like the simmering rage that uh, that gets referenced in the She Hulk TV show. You know that the women have like there's so much that mm-hmm. in that first scene where you like you're palpably frustrated for her <laughs> as you're mm-hmm. as you're reading this, uh, which is just a great job by the writing and the you know and the art uh, to to convey all that and. Uh, Polito, he does somehow he makes like single page montages work really well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which is a skill set that I, I I don't think I've described very often, but like he just layers so much into, uh, you know, single pages where you're like traveling through time through these little sections of it and you step back and you look at it as a whole, but you also like were engaged with each piece of it individually. Um, it, it is uh, a pretty impressive uh skill that that he has um i read these um 
not in the ideal way. I was reading them on the Marvel Unlimited app. And for a couple of the issues, I had to do it on my phone and not even on on my laptop. Uh, so the art Ooh. was like going panel by panel. But then it would like pop out. Like I'd be following the panel by panel. And like, I've obviously I'm missing something on the context of this page. And then it would pop out to show me the right, you know, the full page. Uh, because you couldn't read the word balloons on the full page, uh, you know, reading on the phone. Uh, but whenever I, it jumped out to those full pages, I'm like, oh, this is just brilliant. <laughs> I wish I was reading this in like physical paper on my hand. <laughs> so I could really be taking this all in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even I was reading, I think I, I know that I do have original copies of this, but I do not know where they are. But um, mm-hmm. I was reading it on my iPad. And then yeah, there are so many double page spreads. And they just they did not display ideally in the format that yeah. I was reading them in, which mm-hmm. is really tragic, because there are these these beautiful two page spreads of her moving through space. And, you know, as you said, sort of using the art of juxtaposition, the subjective nature of time, and all of those wonderful, magical things that comics do so well. And yeah, it's unfortunately not as impressive in the digital format as as it could be. Yeah, it really stuck out to me that, um, you know, the the digital reader, particularly on my phone, was not the right way to be consuming this because those individual elements were meant to be consumed both as one massive whole on these two page spreads or single page spreads, but then also as like each word balloon that you read through and you just couldn't do it simultaneously on on my phone the way that it was designed to be done, you know, to be done. Um, we're, we, we're, and there's things that the phone, like Marvel's been doing some scrolling comics that are trying to play to the strength of, of yeah, people who read yeah. comics on the phone. And it's always interesting to me the way where technology is and how thing, the story is going to be consumed actually like changes what's what the story itself is. Uh, and this was an instance where like it was made for one particular format and print format and it's been adapted into a different reading style, but it, it just doesn't reward the reader the same way. And this is absolutely true. The other thing I wanted to make sure that we touched on was the Kevin Water covers for the series, which we haven't mentioned. Mm -hmm. He does covers for all 12 issues and they are beautiful. They really are. They're, how would you describe these? Hmm. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to put that all in your plate. Well, Uh no, well, Kevin Wada, I believe his background is in fashion illustration. And I had known of him prior to his work on this series through some commissions and fan art um, that he did of Marvel characters, especially X-Men stuff. I remember I had one of his drawings of the ex-women in in <laughs> fancy evening wear as the desktop background of my computer for like at least a year before this series came out. So it was already on my radar and his art kind of got shared around online a lot. And I think it's very interesting to choose him as the cover artist for this series because he comes from kind of that background, you know, to choose an artist who is popular with not necessarily exclusively a female fan community, but like a feminized fan community because he has a big gay following as well. But that's a very different choice of cover artist than Greg Korn. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like when we think about who this comic was trying to appeal to, who this comic was trying to sell itself to, that choice of cover artist and his style is very, I mean, it's very fashion illustrating. Like it's very like... It looks like uh, a designer's portfolio, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, it kind of has like a watercolory feel in terms of the colors, yeah. but there's often like layered, like there's a figure in the background and then, but then there's Jen on, you know, on top of that figure in the background, there's a lot of layering that's happening within it. And um, when I was just Google, I, I, so I just Googled She-Hulk Charles Soul covers just to 
visualize these again and it did also pull up like some of the greg horn covers right next to it i'm like oh these are just feel so different so different to have them juxtaposed right next to each other um and again i don't i don't want to like trash the dance law series because my understanding i haven't gone and read it but my understanding is that it, the in, the actual stories that are being told are very different than what you the sense you get from those covers and you know it's it's an issue of context too right because i mean I study sex and superheroes. I am not mm-hmm. against sexy superheroes, but it is very different if you're selling an issue of Vampirella versus you're selling an issue of She-Hulk. And maybe yeah. to some people that isn't that different. But I mean, again, it just depends on audience. If you're going to be selling She-Hulk to women as a fantasy of empowerment, is Greg Horn necessarily the best choice? And I mean, again, I don't want to some women and particularly like for the, Greg the Horn's art. I don't want to were... say everybody, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but but it doesn't seem to match the story that was happening yes. inside either, yes. which is I, the cover is the first thing that readers are going to see. Uh, exactly. And it, it is setting a tone or an expectation for the audience to see that. And so it is kind of a bizarre choice to mm-hmm. be selling mm-hmm. sex so overtly on the on the cover. And then the dance lot have kind of a tongue in cheek legal. Uh, the, I, like, I still remember there. One of the plot points is like uh, using pin particles to shrink all the villains into a mini jail <laughs> and then they escape. Mm-hmm. But they're all mini and running around. And mm-hmm. like you look at the cover and that's not what is being sold to you. Yeah. And I mean, those covers incorporate humor, but still it's a very, so much of the stuff we already talked about, right? Like Mm -hmm. who is the humor for? What is the nature of the humor? Because again, there are so many different types of sexiness. I think She-Hulk is still very sexy in the Polito series, but it is a very different type of sexiness than we're being sold in, in some of the covers of that former series. Oh, and I do want to shout out for this Charles Soule series. They do a uh, like one page recap of Jen Walters talking directly to the audience, uh, mm-hmm. which is really the only fourth wall breaking that that happens is that opening page. Uh, but just the writing and the presentation of it is just so smartly done uh, for for each one of those. Um, and oh, I I must not get get to this, but I see uh, it looks like in in issue number ten there's a a double page spread version of it with Matt Murdock on one side and she Hulk on the other <laughs> talking through directly to the audience. It looks like, uh, cause that, that just showed up on these Google image searches. Um, as, as I was looking up some stuff about this series, uh, but to make a wall of word balloons with one figure there, like both visually interesting, but also fun to read is not easy. And <laughs> they managed to strike a tone, uh, that really lands very well to get the reader up to speed on every, uh, in, in every issue. And even though I just like most of these, I just read the issue like five minutes before. Now I'm turning on, you know, turning to the next one. I still stopped and read those. Cause I thought they were very well done. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Anna, thank you for coming on. I think that is going to wrap up our discussion of She-Hulk. Uh, if you are looking uh, for these, I read them through the Marvel Digital Unlimited app, but I would imagine you can still get your hands on any trade paperbacks, uh, you know, for uh, for for the Charles Soule series, if this sounded interesting to, to anyone. Um, Anna, is there anything you would like to plug before we wrap up the episode? Um, yeah, you can, if you're of the academic inclination, you can check out my book chapter. Wow. Let me say that again. You can check out my book chapter, This Female Fights Back, A Feminist History of Marvel Comics Books, which, uh, is from the collection Make Ours Marvel came out like, oof, uh, like five years ago now. Oh, it's so long ago. I'm so quickly on those I know, I know. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I talk a lot about She-Hulk there, kind of going through different eras of the character, including, I, I think the only extended academic analysis of the She-Hulk Diaries novel, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but is an interesting historical document. Marvel was teaming up with Harlequin to do romance novels. It was an interesting time. 
Um, so yeah, I'll plug that. And I will also plug my podcast, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow, which is an issue by issue recap of the classic Marvel comic series Excalibur. Joe's been on. We had a great chat about a great Alan Davis comic. And yeah, you can find us wherever your wherever your podcasts are found. Now, you are pretty far into Excalibur at this point. How many, we are. How many issues have you recorded? At the time of this recording, our issue 67 will be coming out this week. So we've got uh, about a year left. We're about halfway done of our commitment to talk about, for, about Excalibur for 126 plus weeks. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, it, it is such a fun, bizarre series, uh, Excalibur. Uh, so many highs and also just like, wait, what was that? <laughs> that I just read <laughs> moments in that series. And it's a, it's a really fun podcast that you have going. And you've well, also yeah. Yeah, had such sorry, a wide cast on there. I was going to say, like, it, it's impressive the the breadth of guests that you've been able to pull in. It has been interesting to me how many people who are like comics academics too are like oh my god Excalibur is one of my favorite series and kind (laughs) of I mean I thought that that would be an appeal for it when we when we launched it you know Andrew and Mav were the co-hosts of the podcast they Mm -hmm. were like oh no one's gonna want to hear us talk about Excalibur and I was like actually I think that there is an intense cult following of this series of all of these people who read this weird marginal X-Men book when it was coming out and were felt like they were the only ones reading it and to discover all these years later that they weren't the only ones reading it, <laughs> that there are enough people that we can have a new guest every single week coming on to talk to us about Excalibur and say smart things. Um, <laughs> if you like Excalibur, you'll like this podcast. And if you like action comedy superhero books, you know like She-Hulk you might also like Excalibur Mm -hmm. and our podcast and we've had both Mav and Andrew on the protagonist podcast Uh, so if you've enjoyed any of those episodes I do highly recommend uh, the Ogasho Valley Oh Wow podcast all right, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Oh, yeah, I don't have it open. Hold on a second. Oh. oh, I'm happy to do it. I just didn't want to steal your thunder and pretend these were my oh, words. Oh, no, that's I okay. I definitely can. I'm sure we can edit that so it sounds better.